0: Well, good morning. It is always a blessing for us to be together. Once again, I want to welcome the Steenkamp family as they join us. Uh, If you were following uh, the the news of of them trying to get to us from South Africa, it was even more challenging than than it usually is, and so I'm very thankful that they were able to get here and that we've been able to to see them and hear from them, and I hope that you take advantage of this time the next few weeks uh, to, to visit with them and to hear stories of how God is at work uh, all over this world to bring people closer to Christ. And as we continue uh, this week in our, our Advent message series where we're opening our hearts up to the truth that we believe, that we are convinced that Jesus not only came once into our world, but he's still finding new ways to show up, and that we believe that at the end of time, When when God decides to send Jesus in his fullness back into this world, that you and I are going to be blessed beyond our imaginations. And so what does it mean to be people who center our lives on that hope? This morning, we're going to focus on what does it mean to be people who believe in a a chaotic world where things don't always work the way we want them to. What does it mean for, for us to believe that God is able to bring peace. Now, I couldn't help but notice how perfectly uncomfortable the experience of trying to light the peace candle was for all of us this morning, but no more so for Terry and Alicia, and then for, for poor Victor, who was doing physical violence to that lighter trying to get it <laughs> to light. That was a long handful of seconds. And I I was not feeling anything close to peace. (laughs) And it was also, I I, I couldn't help but notice, a a really good reminder of how difficult it is to find peace. That even when we decide that we want to be people of peace, even when we we decide we want to partner with God in, in helping other people encounter peace through us, that decision is just the beginning of that journey. And there's going to be a lot of, a lot of things that go on that, that we didn't anticipate things we, we weren't looking out for, and, and we're still going to have to ask ourselves, okay, do we believe that we worship a God of peace who brings peace, who wants us to be a part of that, even when things aren't working out the way that we expected? As we look at the beginning of each of the the four Gospels, we find them wrestling with, okay, how how do we start this most amazing story? You know, Mark, as you look at how he started, he he doesn't have any time for Jesus to be a baby. He's not interested in that. He wants to get right to to the action. And so, as you open up to Mark, you, you find that Jesus is ready, for his three years of, of ministry, for, for three years of amazing events that unfold that, that are convincing people that God really has come to this world and has broken into our lives and is calling us into that amazing work with him. John says, you know, Mark, you really, you really jumped in way too fast. In fact, I, I want to start not just at his birth. I want to start at the very beginning, in the beginning, All the way back to Genesis, that that that's how far back this really all goes. That that's where, if if you want to know when it starts, it starts before anything else happens. That this loving God who creates us and gives us the ability to choose, and gives us the ability to live the kinds of lives that, that we may think well, this is the life I want. This is, this is the life I want for the people that I, I care about. And yet, in the midst of trying to build those lives, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to go through things that, that really, if we made different decisions, we wouldn't have to deal with. And so, as God creates us with that, that capacity to, to partner with him in our own lives, he, before we do anything, before we're able to make the wrong kinds of decisions, God makes a decision of his own and says, I'm going to find a way to bring you back. I'm going to find a way in Jesus to help you recover the lives that you lose. Well, Matthew and Luke, they, they kind of basically agree about where they want to start the story. They, they, they want to start right around Jesus' birth. Now Luke, he, he says, you know, I don't want to just kind of... Tell the story in a straightforward way. I'd I'd like you to understand how amazing and and and, and magical the experience was for people when when Jesus finally shows up. And so, if, if you read Luke and you, you pay close attention, it it reads like a musical, like a play. Not not that it it's about things that are unrealistic, but just that that Luke's saying, look. The, the things that were happening when Jesus was was breaking into this world, you need poetry, you need songs, you need need imagination to understand how how much it was changing everything. That words themselves just aren't enough. And so everybody's singing. Mary's singing, and Simeon's singing, and Anna's singing. Everybody's singing, just trying to help us understand how how filled to overflowing their lives and their hearts are in that moment. Well, Matthew, he's less of an artist and he's more of a teacher. And, and he's not the most engaging teacher. He's an orderly teacher. He, he wants to lay things out. And he's having to build a really important argument as far as he's concerned, which is he's trying to tell Jewish men and women who had somehow managed to miss the coming of the Messiah, he's having to help them understand how they could have missed it. At the same time, he's having to lay out how Jesus really does fulfill all the promises that they've always been waiting for, that they, they missed it. But but Jesus isn't isn't completely breaking the mold of what they thought they were looking for. And so as as he thinks about, okay, how do I lay that out? Well, if he's going to tell them that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, he's going to start where a lot of people who, who shared his faith would start, with a family tree. Now again, Matthew is not, the most engaging teacher according to our modern expectations of how you get people's attention and how you hold people's attention. Because if you want to put people to sleep nowadays, you start by saying, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat. And we're going to actually read some verses this morning, and I'm warning you so that you can kind of wake yourself up. Because we're going to read together now in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And I promise you, it's going somewhere. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Right? Those are both really important names for all of the people who feel like they're waiting for the Messiah. They expect him to be in the line of Abraham, and especially in the line of David. And so now he's going to prove it. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Abinadab. Are you with me still? Okay. Abinadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Ebed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Now we're going to skip down to 15, because I love you. Okay, we're going to skip down to 15. (laughs) Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer was the father of Methan, Methan was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Okay, now, we don't know the full story of all these names, especially by heart. But the argument that Matthew's making by laying out this family tree It's something very close to this quote from Minister Sam Albury. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. The family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. Well, What do we mean by that? Well, you may have known some of the names as I was reading them. But there are a few that I bolded that I want us to spend our time asking why in the world Matthew includes those names. Because they are four unexpected names for a couple of reasons. The first is in almost, in almost all Jewish genealogies at that time, well, you notice how most of the genealogy worked, didn't you? It's just a dad and a son, a dad and a son, a dad and a few sons. But then a few places, Matthew includes the names of women. Now, it's not that that never happened, it's just that it didn't normally happen. And part of the reason for that was that in, in the ancient Israelite culture, women, women were not important in terms of inheritances. because they couldn't receive the inheritance. The father passed it on to the son, the firstborn son. If that firstborn son lost his life, then maybe it would start to go down the, the line from one son to the next. But what you really wanted to know was, who was responsible for holding on to the family legacy? Specifically, who was able to receive the inheritance? And if that's what you're focused on, you don't just toss in names of people who were viewed more as property than as, as persons. So Matthew's already doing something that, that if we were falling asleep on him with all these names, this would have woken us up if we were the, the first people to receive his story. The other thing is, it's not like he's mentioning you know, a Hall of Fame list of foremothers, He doesn't mention Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel. And if I was going to start to say, okay, one of the things that I want you to notice is that God's working through more than just the people who who the world says, okay, we're going to attach value to that name because they were the ones who had the power to pass on the inheritance. God's already unsettling that way of viewing people. But the, the question is then why would you pick these names? And that's what I want us to wrestle with for a little bit this morning together. The first name is Tamar. If you've got your Bible and you want to go ahead and look at Genesis 38, you're going to find that she has what I would consider to be, for a Sunday morning, a PG-13, leaning towards an R, backstory. That that she... She's not somebody, if you're trying to prove that someone comes from an impressive family, you bury this name. You don't highlight it. I'm going to try to say it as, as clearly but as civilly as possible. Tamar has the unfortunate experience of being married to a wicked person who God strikes dead. Then she has to marry his brother because she's living in a world where she's not a person as much as she's property. And if she's gonna survive, she's gotta attach herself somehow, some way, legally to, to a man, right? So so once her husband, her first husband, dies, she this is how the, the culture works. She married his brother. He doesn't want to share his inheritance with her, so he mistreats her, and God sees his wickedness and strikes him dead. So then it gets hard to get a third possibility. The men in the family are figuring out that's a dangerous role. So Judah, her father-in-law, says, I'll give you my youngest son when he's of age. But then the years pass, and he, he backs out on his promise to take care of her. And he says it's because he doesn't want his third son to die like the other two, which there's some truth there. But he doesn't find a way to take care of her, even though he's promised to. So she has to trick him. And I'm not going to go into all of the details of how she tricks him, but it's scandalous. She's been backed into a corner. She doesn't feel like she has any other options. So she plays the card she's been dealt the best way she knows how to play him. But it's an embarrassing chapter in a family's life. Then Rahab, you know that name, right? Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 6, she has kind of a formal last name in Joshua, Rahab the prostitute, right? And she's someone that the the spies, when they're trying to to figure out exactly how strong Jericho is and and where the strategic weaknesses might be, and they're trying to figure out where they want to stay, they decide that they're going to stay in a brothel. Rahab's there. She knows, she has heard of, she has seen that God is with the people of Israel. And so she comes to them. She not only welcomes them in, but she comes to them and says, You've got to save me and my family. I have no other options. I, I I can see the God's with you, but I don't know what else to do So, because I've extended hospitality to you and she she comes up with a cover story to keep them safe and she does all this stuff again. Questionable choices all along the way. They end up making a promise with her. You know, you tie this this cord and, and it'll mark your household and we will save you. We'll spare you when the city falls. Well, that's what happens. They keep their promise to her and she moves from the outside of the story to the inside of the story. But again, if I'm asking somebody, hey, could you, could you clean up my family tree so we, we kind of highlight the people that I'd like to talk about in polite you know, dinner conversation, Rahab doesn't make the list. Then Ruth. Ruth is another woman who finds herself in a position where she doesn't have a lot of options. And the key challenge with Ruth is that she does not share the faith of Israel when her story begins. She comes from the, the wrong part of the world as far as a lot of them would have been concerned. She, she's a, a Moabite. Right, and and not only does she come from a different culture, but she says to Naomi, when they they lose all the men in their lives, right? My my God will be your God. Your people will become my people. Like I, I don't have the right pedigree and I know it, but I want to become a part of this story. I promise. And one night she goes and she finds. Boaz, who was a good, righteous man. And she offers herself to him because she doesn't have anywhere else to turn. And Boaz blesses her with kindness and understanding. And she starts out on the outside of the story and she gets to the inside of the story. Now the fourth woman, in case you're not already blushing a little bit, we don't even have her proper name because Matthew wants us to remember the scandal that brings her into the story, right? What does he call her? Not David's wife, the wife of Uriah, the what? You remember his, his full kind of name often? Uriah the Hittite. So her husband doesn't really come from the right place, and she is a part of, of the story of David, and it's really the turning point in David's life where he, he starts to unravel. And, and she's the, the name that then will lead us to the name of Solomon, which is an important, it's one of those ones that you'd want to highlight and put a bunch of, you know, a spotlight on. But in order to get to him, right, you have to get through her, And Matthew wants people to wrestle with and be a little bit uncomfortable with her place in the story because she didn't really choose to be in the the story as much as she was dragged into it. It's the darkest moment of of David's life. Not only what he does to her, but what he does to, to her husband, who Matthew won't let us forget. And then there's the last name, right? Mary. That's what we got to in verse 16. And I think it's Mary's name. I think she's the reason that Matthew brings up these four other women. And I think it's because we don't often, you know, keep this all straight in our minds when we're we're reading the Bible. But, you know, the, the books of the Bible are written at different times. And it's easy for us to assume that because Matthew comes first, that it was written first. But Matthew's written a lifetime after, a generation after those events first happened, which means there's 20, 30, 40 years where people are telling the story of Jesus' birth, and they're talking about this young woman who was betrothed to be married, and she, she came up pregnant. And her story was, God made me pregnant. But people have their doubts. There's rumors. There's whispers. Now, I know we think about, well, right at the moment when it happened, there were rumors and there were whispers, and Mary was probably not believed, and, and people in her life rejected her, and all of that's true. But you think about how stories take on a life of their own over the course of 20, 30, 40 years, and people say, well, you know, maybe, maybe Joseph was just trying to cover things up for her. And I want us to take just a moment to consider how hard it would be for us. We, this is where familiarity, I think, takes out the, the, the miracle of Jesus. From We assume that, that because we've read it over and over again, that we would have accepted it had it happened to us in real time the first time. But I'm telling you, if a, if a young girl came to us and said, I know I promised to be married, and I promise you, God's the one who made me pregnant, what would we do? What would we say? What story would we come up with that fits our ideas of what's possible or or maybe even more complicated than that, something that fits with our ideas of how God has to work because it makes us more comfortable if God always works the way we expect him to? People made up stories that seemed more realistic than what really happened. One of the key rumors about Mary was that a Roman soldier had taken advantage of her. Had forced his way on her and that's what happened and then that's not really a a holy story pure, amazing way for God to come into the world so somebody who was artistic and poetic came up with some more sanitized, miraculous version. Well, here's what Matthew does with all this Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had, and you're falling asleep on him. You know what he's saying? You've accepted these women as a part of our story of how God has worked among us. You may not wanna talk about them. You may not wanna think about them. You may not want them to be where everybody else is paying attention, but I'm gonna remind you that even though we didn't understand it, even though we we didn't approve of it, even though we, we wouldn't have written the story this way if we were the ones writing it, we know these names and we know these women And we believe that God was with them and working through them when sometimes nobody else was in their corner. Nobody else was was helping them. Nobody else would believe them. God did. And if you can accept Tamar and Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, can't you find it in your heart to believe Mary? Mary? This is what Matthew's doing with the boring genealogy. He's trying to help open our eyes again to understand that the pathway of peace is never as quiet, calm, smooth as we want. It just isn't. You know, there are unpredictable turns. There are unanticipated challenges and unexpected people. And the reason it 's so important for us to open our hearts to this truth at this time of the year is what it means is that Christmas has the potential if we 'll let it the Christmas story it helps heals it helps to heal. Our, our, our sense of how we're going to look at everybody else around us, everybody else we interact with, it's going to bring this new perspective on us where we think we have everyone else figured out. We think we know exactly what they're capable of. We, we think we know what their potential is. We think we, we could give them a title and put them in another group of people that we think that this totally sums them up. You know they're a sinner or they're a saint? They're important or they're not. They have power or they're powerless. They're respectable. They're people we want to bring up. They're people we want to sweep to the side or or maybe put under the rug. People we don't ever want to have to deal with again. All of us are tempted in our world, especially because of how difficult it is in our, our relationships to one another. We are tempted to put people into categories that we can ignore and we can walk past or we don't have to deal with because it's too messy and it's too difficult and the lighter just won't light. And God says, one of the first steps back to peace, back to one another, is seeing the way Jesus, the only way he came to us is through people we wouldn't have chosen. People we would have underestimated. People we would have depersonalized until they were property. That's, That's how Jesus gets to us. And maybe it's how he still gets to us. This, this time of the year, right? it reminds us that it is often the people who we, we tend to forget or misunderstand, and in that misunderstanding even at times condemn. It's those people who are the very same people that God wants to partner with so that the Prince of Peace can be born into our world and into our lives once more. But if we forget how God has always used the forgotten and the misunderstood. The people that make us uncomfortable and so we end up passing judgment on them and even condemning them. If we, if we don't wake up again to that truth, brothers and sisters, at this time of the year when we should have open hearts and a spirit of generosity, of, of, of hospitality, of welcome... If, if we can't find a place in our hearts and our church for someone like Tamar, and Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. If we don't have room for them in our church, how could we have room for Christ? Because it's through them that he gets to us. He's the Prince of Peace. He calls us to believe that peace is still possible in a world where I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I am so tempted every single day to just decide we're done. It's not possible. We'd be better off to just go to our old corner. I-, I wish there were enough corners for all of us to be put in the corner sometimes, you know, just get away. Stop trying. Stop stop trying to fix this. Stop trying to win the argument. Stop just we're never going to get there. Let's just get away from each other and wait till Jesus comes back and then he can sort it all out. And I can't be the only person in this room who's tempted to give up on peace. Peace is here. If we have the eyes to see it, peace is calling us to believe again. And I'm telling you, I think the first step is to stop assuming that we have figured it out, that we're the ones who are gonna be in charge of it, that it's gonna be clear and predictable and and we're gonna be able to have all these strategies and they're gonna work. No, 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 no. Peace comes from a place beyond ourselves. But it always comes to us, through us. If we're going to accept peace, it's not an abstract idea. It's you and I learning how to welcome, how to embrace people we would otherwise pass judgment on. And say, look, none of us deserves to be here. None of us deserves to get to gather around the manger or sit at the table or be a part of this family. The peace that we experience is not something we have orchestrated. It is something that has been given to us. And it always takes the form of a person. If we can find a way to see them and to see Christ in them. Jesus comes and he breaks down the categories of, of kings and commoners, of, of men and women, those who have power in a culture and those who don't. And, and Jesus comes and he breaks down the walls that we build between sinners and saints, and he says, "I I come in peace." Will you receive me in peace? And will you start to see one another with the same grace and the same mercy that you extend for the people you already care the most about? What would happen if you started to care about everyone in this world? with the same love that you have with the people you'd give anything for? What if everybody was someone you'd give anything for? That, brothers and sisters, that's the first step on our way back to one another. It's our first step on our way back home, where all of us get to live in the presence of the eternal Prince of Peace. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, My prayer and my hope is that we would not simply look for things to be smooth and predictable and controllable, but that we would open our hearts and our lives and our souls once again to the possibility that Jesus, Jesus sneaks up on us, sometimes wearing disguises we least expect, but if we're looking for him in everyone, we will find him there. Would you stand and sing?